It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Harris Faulkner. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Janice Dean. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Friday, August 25th, 2023. I'm Jared Halpern. Two seismic events in the 2024 campaign. But has the political landscape shifted this week? Now we wait to see in the days ahead how it impacts fundraising and all of those things where we can see, all right, who do they think out of this debate actually has some staying power? And who, that was their last hurrah and they're done. We speak with Fox News Sunday host, Shannon Breen. I'm Chris Foster. Five months after his arrest in Russia, more disappointing but unsurprising news for American journalist Evan Gershkovich. This is a essentially government taking um, another country's citizen hostage. And the Russians see leverage in doing that. So he's the first journalist since the Cold War that they've done this to, but they have done this to several others. We're speaking with Wall Street Journal Washington Bureau Chief Paul Beckett. And I'm Jason Chaffetz. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. Two pivotal swing states played host to two of the biggest candidate events so far this election cycle. In Wisconsin, where former President Trump upset the polls in 2016, only to lose the state four years later, eight of the Republicans challenging him squared off in the first primary debate in front of a rowdy crowd in the arena and millions watching at home. Georgia, meantime, was preparing for perhaps the most famous defendant ever to be booked in Fulton County's jail. His Trump was fingerprinted, his photo taken as part of a $200,000 bond agreement on efforts to overturn Georgia's red to blue 2020 results. Former South Carolina governor and President Trump's U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley summed up the two scenes on Fox News. I was proud to serve in his administration. I agree with most of his policies, but we have to be honest again. He's going to spend more time in a courtroom than he's going to spend on the campaign trail. We cannot allow a President Kamala Harris. We have to win that general election. And while Trump is divisive, to be sure, a source of strong opinions, he remains the overwhelming frontrunner for the Republican base with undiminished support. So it begs the question, after two major events on the campaign calendar, has anything changed? For a lot of people, though, end of summer, first debate, they're getting their first look at this field and they got a chance to do that without President Trump in the room. Shannon Bream is the host of Fox News Sunday. But I think for a lot of these candidates, they loved being able to discuss policy where every question wasn't, are you going to pardon him? What do you think about the latest indictment? So for most of these candidates, it was their first introduction to a broader American audience. Now we wait to see in the days ahead how it impacts fundraising and all of those things where we can see, all right, who do they think out of this debate actually has some staying power and who that was their last hurrah and they're done. I always like these types of open debates with the party uh, out of power uh, has to kind of figure out which direction the party is going to go. Right. You saw this play out four years ago. Joe Biden kind of uh, presenting himself as the middle, wondering if the centrist uh, part of the Democratic Party was going to hold against all of these progressives. You saw a little bit of that this week as well. Um, And as you look at maybe the Trump strain of the party versus the more establishment strain, you saw that play out, right? One of the biggest fights on the debate stage was over foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Um, This is an area where Republicans are not in lockstep. And listen, I was in the debate hall 
several thousand audience members. It was a nice bellwether to kind of get instant reacts for where the GOP <laughs> base is. But it was mixed. Like, you can't really mm-hmm. tell where voters are headed on the issue of, say, Ukraine aid. Mm-hmm. I think you're exactly right, because the reaction we heard was sometimes uh, to one side got the applause line, the other got the other applause line. And it was a very mixed audience. We heard boos. We heard cheering. Um But I felt like when it came to foreign policy, it was really going to be a dust up between Vivek and Nikki Haley. And it was. I mean, she's the former ambassador to the U.N. She's got a lot of foreign policy experience um, and he's got a lot of controversial things he has to say on the issue of foreign policy. Um, And he was sparring. He kept a smile on his face. I think he's grown in the polls. He had a lot of confidence. Um, But the moment when she said to him, you don't have any foreign policy experience and it shows seemed to be one of the only body blows that he took. And so they, the two of them, I think, demonstrated this real divide on do we um, cut and run out of Ukraine? There's been enough aid. We're done with this, as Vivek suggests, give Putin land that he took or Nikki Haley in that you must crush everything Putin has done or else you now enable China. And the two of them clearly don't see that the same way. And I think that represents a good look at the divide within the GOP. And so as we see that play out now over the next several weeks, does that maybe foretell the direction that Congress goes? For instance, you know, they are going to have to work out some sort of spending bill shortly after they get back next month. Um, The president has asked for this supplemental uh, Ukraine aid. Do you see that debate in Congress maybe following Mm -hmm. where front runners kind of are on this position within the Republican primary? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's going to be the growing divide. Senate GOP totally on board with more. House GOP has a totally different fight going on because you've got a number of members saying we are not going to give any more money without more accountability, without more strings attached with all of these things. We want inspector generals on this money or we just don't want to give it at all. And remember, the speaker is kind of got his hands tied on a few things because he agreed to spending limits that will rein in how much money can go to these various places. So that's where these supplementals come in. And so tying it to domestic aid, especially at a time where we're daily watching the heartbreaking devastation out of Maui, puts these lawmakers in a real bind. Do you say, all right, I'm not going to approve this domestic aid because I don't want it tied to Ukraine aid. I mean, that's a very big showdown for the GOP and the House side. Another flashpoint, abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think there's much difference in sort of the philosophical view on that issue amongst Republicans. But boy, were there some differences on the practicality of some of these Mm -hmm. views. Mike Pence saying this is a moral imperative. Nikki Haley saying we don't have 60 votes in the Senate. Let's do what we can. And it's coming at a time where Republicans around the country are trying to figure out this issue, right? Because Mm -hmm. voters seem to be rejecting some of these very strict abortion bans when they're on the ballot and supporting a a more liberal view on the abortion issue when it's on the ballot. Yeah. And a lot of people have thought that Governor DeSantis has been sort of dancing around this thing. He signed a six week ban in Florida, but didn't do it with a ton of fanfare and a big public signing ceremony and that kind of thing. And they're like, ah, is he running from this? But he fully embraced it. They said I was very proud to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was more than happy to do it. I thought that Tim Scott had the most impassioned plea on this. Like, listen, we can do this with compassion, but if, you know, we're going to have this conversation, you know, we've got to, and and as Nikki Haley said too, who doesn't want to commit to any kind of federal legislation on this, we have to now ask Democrats. That has to be the question. Where do they draw the line? And so even though the Republicans keep trying to reflect 
reframe and refocus on that because there are states, and you and I know this, that have open abortion access and policies up to the moment of birth. That's factual and it's in several states. Um, you never hear about that because Democrats, of course, love to hear Republicans in fighting six weeks, 15 weeks, ban, no federal ban. And they aren't coalesced on a position. You heard Doug Burgum there say, I don't think it should be a federal issue at yeah, all. Leave it up to, to the, the states, states, even yeah, where yeah. he has signed a six week ban in North Dakota. It's one of the most restrictive in the country. Mm-hmm. But he says, you know, these things aren't going to be the same in New York and Iowa. And we just have to let it go and let the states figure it out. And that's another point where, you know, perhaps you see Congress move in the direction of wherever the front runner is uh, on this issue. I guess we we have to talk about that aspect of this, too. Uh, the front runner in the race, the former president not participating. It did appear that he was watching. He was uh, giving some mm-hmm. commentary on his Truth Social page. So he was certainly watching the debate, reacting to the debate. I wondered as I was sort of seeing that in real time, if uh, you think maybe he had some FOMO. Do you think he maybe was, was urged to to take part in the, the next debate? Well, you know, he loves a good fight. So maybe mm-hmm. he wants to wait this first one out, let them see if they'll cannibalize each other. Then maybe I come back and get involved. Um, but I think that he also loves having a separate spotlight on him for sure. And maybe he felt like, gosh, I felt like the whole two hours is going to be about me. And it wasn't. I don't know, because they, <laughs> they actually got to talk some policy, which I know these you know candidates are tired of talking about Trump nonstop. That had to be a part of the debate. It was part of the debate. But I think for a lot of potential GOP primary voters, they enjoyed hearing some more policy discussions. He probably didn't like that there were policy discussions that weren't about him. Um, There were a few, but yeah. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you know, his name definitely came up many, many times. Of of course, it only makes sense. And listen, it's not just about the illegal stuff. There there are questions about his electability moving forward, right? I I don't remember Mm -hmm. which candidate said it, but they said, you know, he is the most unpopular politician in America right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Nikki Haley. So, I mean, that's something that Republican voters have to wrestle with, too, if the overall objective is certainly winning Mm -hmm. next year and not having a second Biden term. Yeah. And all of our recent polling is very interesting on this because a majority of Americans say that they believe he did something wrong. But a majority of Americans also say they believe that these investigations are political in nature. Mm. So you've got those two competing themes. He did something wrong, but he was targeted because of politics. Um, American voters are very confused at this point, I think, (laughs) about exactly where they want to go with their vote. (laughs) Let's talk about the other candidate who is not on stage, obviously, President Biden. Um, Mm -hmm. He was watching, too. Certainly his rapid response team uh, was watching. Mm -hmm. Actually gave some early props to Nikki Haley, actually, which I thought was an interesting uh, approach. (laughs) She was very critical of Republican spending under uh, the the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) I don't know if that helps her or not, but at any rate, they were clearly watching. Um, Do you think that as the president was watching this, he is more or less confident about reelection? Gosh, I mean, I think that he sees that there are people up there who have very sharp elbows. I mean, they're they are going to go for the jugular. There are some very fighter driven kind of people. And you know that President Trump is the same way who will go straight for the jugular. And they have a lot of arguments on the economy, even though uh, this administration will be able to show progress and green shoots and moving forward. The polling says that people are not buying it. They don't feel it yet. The economy is the thing that drives most voters and they'll punish whoever's in power, whether it's Republican or Democrat. So you saw that all the candidates were very strong in that position. And that's got to be of concern mm-hmm. to the White House because, you know, they can say as much as they want that the numbers look good. But until people feel it, it's going to be a very easy line of attack for Republicans, whoever the nominee is. And that's the challenge. We've talked a lot about that, that the the macroeconomic sort of view, the unemployment rate, um, you know, 
domestic growth, inflation's moving down. That's all great. But to your point, gas is still expensive. Groceries are still expensive. Mm -hmm. People are still figuring out uh, how to save for, you know, retirement, how to save for for college education for their kids. Um, mm -hmm. That's really what's going to define, I suppose, the the Biden reelect campaign more than anything else. And yeah. it probably doesn't matter which Republican he's up against, does it? Not on the issue of the economic uh, picture, because our polling also shows, as you mentioned, all those things, grocery prices, gas, rent, school, all of those things people say are a major concern or a major problem for their household. And they don't feel good about their own personal financial situation. They also think the U.S. economy is doing poorly and moving in the wrong direction. So when the president goes around and the centerpiece of his campaign is Bidenomics and how great it's doing, when people at home are like, we hate Bidenomics, it's not working for us, <laughs> right. that's a tough sell. Yeah, and it's interesting because even the administration's like, listen, they said this about Obamacare. People ended up liking big elements of it. We'll see how that plays out. And listen, there's time, right? The economy can look different oh, yeah. a year from now than it does right now. Um, mm -hmm. So we'll finish with this. Uh, I can't imagine you you have anything to talk about on Fox News Sunday this week, but I imagine <laughs> a lot of a, a lot of politics on the show. Yeah, I mean, we have several candidates who want to come and make their post debate no case. So we're <laughs> we're narrowing that down. Um, but also, interestingly enough, we've got Senator Joe Lieberman, retired mm. Senator Joe. Lieberman yeah. with us too to talk about this growing concern um, that Democrats have about a third party um, candidate, which he has been backing this conversation. And they're really starting to worry that in a race this tight, where you know you've got that New York Times Siena College poll showing um, Biden and Trump neck and neck, a uh, third party could really be the biggest spoiler it has been since Bush and Perot back in the day. Oh, yeah. um, so Senator Lieberman yeah. is going to come talk to us about that. So Senator Lieberman uh, once gave an interview to a very young radio reporter covering his very first presidential Aww. campaign, first surrogate I spoke to nice. uh, and, and made my grandmother very happy with that photograph. So give my best to Senator Lieberman. We'll, we'll be watching do. on Sunday. Thank you, Shannon. We'll Thanks, Jared. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine. This is Jason Chaffetz with your Fox News commentary coming up. American journalist Evan Gershkovich was arrested in Yekaterinburg, Russia, March 29th, accused of spying for the United States. Biden administration and his employer, the Wall Street Journal, say he was doing no such thing. The president at the White House Correspondents' Dinner in April. To Evan's parents, Ella, Mikhail, and sister Danielle, as I've told you in person, we, not just me, we all stand with you. And Evan's pretrial detention order is now extended by a court in Moscow. Former United Nations ambassador and Republican presidential candidate Nikki Haley on America's newsroom on Fox just after that was announced. We have to start being strong. We have to protect our journalists. We have to protect our Americans. And the way you do that is you make sure that you have the backs of Ukraine. We make sure that we defend Taiwan so that China never makes a move. And we let the world know there'll be hell to pay. The detention order is extended now through at least the end of November. That's correct. This is a pattern that we've seen since Evan was detained five months ago. Wall Street Journal Washington Bureau Chief Paul Beckett, the journal's a corporate cousin of Fox News. It means that he will be detained for at least another three months. Uh, we will, as we have in the past, appeal that decision, but we have no hopes that it will be granted. And it is disappointing, not surprising, but it really animates us to press even harder for his release. Yeah, it will have been five months since his arrest next week. Um, we're told by the State Department 
that Evan is in good health. Is that your understanding as well? It is. I would just say it's under the circumstances where he's in a Moscow security services jail uh, with very limited ability to do much of anything. So uh, he's a young, fit, healthy, very intelligent Russian-speaking journalist. So uh, we're happy in some ways to hear that he's doing well there. Uh, But again, under the toughest of circumstances, and it's just time to bring this to an end. Do you know if there's really much of an ability to keep his mind right? I mean, does he get reading materials? I know that there are some letters back and forth, but that's, you know, I'm I'm sure those are sporadic. Yeah, we understand that he is uh, reading, uh, he's getting letters in, and he's able to get some letters out. Occasionally when he has appeared uh, in court in the past, you know, he's been able to see his parents who have traveled over to see him. So there is communication. Uh, The U.S. ambassador has been in to see him uh, a few weeks back. So uh, I think there is there are opportunities for him to remain engaged and occupied, but they are very limited. Do we know why Evan was singled out? I mean, did he write something particularly critical? I know he wrote about the Russian economy, but that didn't seem completely uh, very, very critical. Did he write something about Vladimir Putin or was he just somehow a convenient target? We don't know exactly why they singled him out uh, for these false charges, but he it, it's a pattern that we've seen to some degree. And this is a essentially government taking um, another country's citizen hostage. And the Russians see leverage in doing that. So he's the first journalist since the Cold War that they've done this to, but they have done this to several others. So if you look at the, in the Paul Whelan case, uh, he has been unjustly detained and has been there for uh, four plus years. In Brittany Griner's case, the State Department declared her as uh, unlawfully detained. Uh, obviously, she um, came back. But uh, this is a business of leverage for the Russians. Uh, obviously, doing it with a journalist is a high-profile target, but it's far from Brittany Griner, of course, was detained on drug charges. Paul Whelan uh, mm-hmm. is accused, was accu- or is accused of being a spy, same as Evan. Besides this just amorphous charge of espionage, do we know exactly what they're saying he did or was trying to do? Uh, We don't. We're still in the pretrial detention period, which is essentially the investigative period ahead of a trial, which we would expect on current course would happen uh, sometime early to mid next year. Uh, Whatever they say about it, what we know is he was out there reporting for the Wall Street Journal. Uh, That was his only job. Uh, He did it extremely well, uh, and we look forward to him returning to do it as soon as he possibly can. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what kind of reporter is he? What's his professional reputation? And and how do his friends and colleagues just talk about him as a person? He will turn 32 in a few weeks, uh, a birthday that he will mark in jail uh, he is an extremely talented foreign correspondent. It's very hard these days to find people who are really uniquely qualified to cover the story that they're assigned to. And uh, he was one of those people. His parents are uh, Russian Jewish emigres who fled persecution to come to the United States in the 1970s. Uh, he grew up with a strong sense of his own Russian heritage uh, and speaks the language very fluently. So his desire to return to Russia was uh, to get to know the country uh, that his family originally came from before they came to the United States. He was born in the United States, but he went back there to 
to see it. And he loves the country. That's what comes across from his reporting. He uh, didn't, you know, confine himself to the company of foreigners and diplomats. He went out and uh, went to Russian punk band concerts. He loved to play soccer over there. He loved to uh, really engage with the Russian people and get to know them. And that's comes across from his work. He was in Russia when we hired him uh, in just at the end of 2021. So he had already dedicated the uh, first stretch of his uh, young career to uh, covering a story that fascinates him. So that's you know, it, and that's what comes. We talk to his friends like, oh, you know, he's a, he's an animated, engaged. Um, kid who loves life yeah. and wants to know Russia better. Yeah. I mean, 31 is, you know, kid-ish. And um, I, I, that's me talking. That's yeah, me talking yeah, yeah. As a 56 year old. I'm with you. Um, <laughs> uh, I guess well, I, I kind of split the difference. But um, how remarkable is it that, that at his age, he reached the station he has reached professionally? Are there a lot of guys in their early 30s who were doing the kind of work he was doing? The short answer is no, but you would look at uh, the other reporters who, all of them, as far as I can tell, were his friends, who have dedicated their lives to covering Russia. Uh, and there's a group of really, really smart young writers and reporters who are fascinated by Russia and want to tell Russia's story to the rest of the world. And he was part of that cadre. So there are very few people like him, but there are uh, certainly others um, doing excellent work around Russia. And that's been a tough story for many years now. And for foreign correspondents, you know, China has also for better part of a decade uh, been where a lot of the action is. So it takes something special to want to dive in and really dedicate your professional life to, to covering a country that uh, just a few years ago seemed like it was probably on the decline as a world power, but uh, for many of the wrong reasons in the last few years has shot back to prominence. How should news organizations be balancing reporter safety with the work of journalism? I mean, I'm not talking about necessarily war zones uh, that are obviously dangerous, but situation where they could be wrongfully detained like this. Uh, well, it's an excellent, uh, pertinent, uh, uh, and troubling question because you see all around the world uh, greater repression of the press and greater harassment, intimidation, and in some cases, imprisonment of the foreign press. So the safety of our uh, journalists is paramount, and we have an awful lot of uh, very strong protocols in place to try and ensure our reporters' safety. None of those are foolproof, and there will always be risks. I think for every news organization, it's a question of minimizing those risks. Um, when that doesn't prove to be enough, you know, responding as vociferously and uh, quickly as you can to try and fix the situation. But it's something that every newsroom uh, in America and across the democratic world is going to sadly have to put at the top of their agenda. Uh, and we have been helped in our campaign by other news organizations who have gone through this. And uh, we have also been buoyed by the support from other news organizations. Uh, it's an extremely competitive business, as you know, but on an issue like this, 
uh, I think everybody sees the peril and how it could apply to them. And I do think it's an issue that will become even more top of mind for all news organizations that operate in foreign countries going forward. Uh, there are reports of maybe Russia being amenable to some sort of prisoner swap. Is the paper confirming that? We know that that's how Brittany Griner got home. Yeah. Uh, well, we've had indications. It's always tricky to parse what the Russians are trying to say. So, you know, they said early on uh, that Evan would have to go through trial, uh, which we assume, given the nature of the system, will be a conviction on these false charges. Um, and then, then they would be open to prisoner swaps. And then, you know, we've seen bits and pieces since then. Um, we don't see everything that's going on behind the scenes, but... I think probably the most sobering piece is when the Russians, as happened a few weeks ago, come out and say, you know, they tease you a little and say, oh, maybe there's some movement here. And then Jake Sullivan, national security advisor, gets up and says, well, yeah, we are talking, but we don't see any uh, clear path to a breakthrough or a resolution. And then you deflate all over again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they, that, I mean, that seems to be the most likely scenario for his return, uh, but we're bracing for a long haul. Yeah. So, I mean, at, at, at minimum, barring some happy unforeseen circumstance, um, he, he will have spent eight months there before yeah. even going to trial. Um, I, I'm sorry, you touched on this. What's the, what's the timeline? What are his next, what are the next legal steps for him? It, it depends a little bit on uh, how the process works. But if you look at the Paul Whelan case, it was, I think, 15 months between his detention and conviction. Uh, and of course, in his case, uh, that itself was several years ago. I mean, he's been there for four years plus without a resolution. So uh, it's an open-ended process. There's no guarantee that, you know, because the trial is held, uh, then things will quickly resolve. That just gives you some sense of perspective of possible timelines and we're just hoping very much that we can shorten that as by as much as we can yeah let's hope so paul beckett is the washington bureau chief of the wall street journal paul thanks for coming on really appreciate it thank you so much and now some good news with tanya j powers it's been millions of years since the Tyrannosaurus Rex roamed the Earth, unless you count the annual T-Rex World Championships, which was recently held in the Seattle suburb of Auburn, Washington. Emerald Downs, which is usually a track for live horse racing, was the scene of the event, which saw more than 200 people wearing inflatable T-Rex dinosaur costumes run down the track, aiming to get to the front of the pack. This is audio, so let's take a moment for a little theater of the mind and think about all those inflatable t-rex costumes with people running and their heads bobbing back and forth as they hurry to get ahead of the rest of them it ended in a photo finish with three competitors hitting the finish line together Ocean Kim of Hawaii took the top honors for finishing the 100-yard dash in just nine seconds after race officials agreed that Kim hit the wire just before the rest of the group. The T-Rex World Championship started in 2017 as a pest control company's team-building activity. Tanya J. Powers, Fox News.
pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Jason Chaffetz. What's on your mind? Standing before a New Mexico audience recently, President Biden unintelligibly joked that, quote, I hibernated in a while all, you know, in Iowa for a while, end quote. It's not clear what he meant by that, but hibernating is an apt descriptor of the Biden 2024 re-election campaign. Though Biden was mocked for seemingly campaigning from his basement in 2020, This summer, he appears to be campaigning from the beach. That's where he spent the weekend while Maui burned and serious presidential contenders drummed up support at the Iowa State Fair. That's just one of several indicators that Biden may not be planning to see his name on a ballot next year. Though Biden has begun hiring fundraisers for the 2024 campaign, His operation is a tiny skeleton crew of staffers working exclusively out of his home state of Delaware. That puts them closer to his homes near Wilmington and Rehoboth Beach, but far from the center of gravity in swing states or the nation's capital. As of last quarter, he had just four people on the payroll, all working out of the party offices. There seems to be little urgency to mount a full-scale campaign, and the first primary votes are five months away. With few exceptions, we don't see him on the campaign trail defending his presidency or touting his accomplishments in key battleground states. We don't see his vice president making the case for him. He isn't sharing his vision for the future. He is hiding, hiding from the press, hiding from the scandals, and hiding from his own incompetence as a commander-in-chief. By the end of this calendar year, I, for one, anticipate he won't be a candidate in 2024. I'm Jason Chaffetz, a Fox News contributor and host of the Jason in the House podcast on the Fox News Radio Network. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.